Merry Christmas to all of you. It's been uh, quite the week. Uh, they were dropping like flies around here. Uh, we're down to like skeleton crew. And if I start coughing and I throw my Bible to John, you'll know what's happening. He'll just pick it up and keep going, okay? So uh, it's really wonderful to be together tonight with all of you. And we are excited to be able to share this time with you as we think about really the most amazing thing that's ever happened in this globe. God came and visited. And so uh, this, uh, this evening, I'm not going to say this morning, we don't do a lot of evening things, so I'm going to try not to do that. This evening, I want to talk about the glory of Christmas. And the text that I want us to focus in is in John chapter 1, verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14. And, and the simple, the simple uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just go ahead and read John chapter 1, verses 14 to verse 18. And this is not going to be a long sermon, so don't sweat it, but uh, I think it's going to be a good sermon. I, I think so. So I've had 48 hours to meditate on these deep thoughts, so here we go. John chapter 1, 14 to 18. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right side. He has made him known. The word of the Lord. Oh, nice, nice. What do the reality shows American Ninja Warrior, America's Got Talent, and Fear Factor all have in common? Well, what they all have in common is that you see fellow Americans who possess some kind of amazing quality. They can do some kind of great athletic feat. Uh, they can sing like you can't believe it. Some little person comes up on stage and you're just like, wow, that was amazing. Or they can take a hissing Madagascar cockroach and consume it like a PBJ as if nothing happened. And therefore, about 15 minutes, they have their moment of glory, their moment of fame, where they shine. What about you? What about me? What will be our greatest moment of glory? When all is said and done, what will be the moment when we really shined? When we were dazzling, when we were radiant, that moment when our capacities, our beauty, our strength, our awesomeness just came through. What is that moment? Will it be the moment you finally finish med school? Or maybe it might be uh, some academic achievement. It might be some project that took many years at work when you are finally done with that. And for some of us, those moments might be already in the past and we think about the glory days. Well, the Bible is the story of God. And it's fair to ask, what was God's greatest moment of glory? You know... If we look at the Old Testament, we see some possible candidates for God's greatest moment of glory. We think of creation. You know, it says on the seventh day that after God uh, created everything, he rested from his works. And that must have been amazing. This is before the corrupting power of sin entered the world, just in all of its beauty. And God said it was very good. Psalm 19.1 says... The heavens declare the glory of God. And I know that all of us sometimes sit there maybe with a sunset or uh, maybe at the beach and you think, wow, God, amazing, glorious. 
Or maybe it was the wonders of God's great acts of redemption. That's where God's glory really shined. That's where God was just brilliant. You know, you think about the, 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 you know, the ten plagues, you know, and then it culminates with God parting the Red Sea, just sweeping the sea away as if it's a puddle and he's got a broom, pushing it to the side. Well, if we survey the Old Testament, the word glory is used most frequently and most focusedly, not in terms of creation or his great acts of deliverance, but in God's splendor that was revealed to Moses and the people of Israel. It was his Shekinah glory, a tangible, physical, visible splendor, an extraordinary radiance of God's presence that we read about in the book of Exodus. God's glory appeared by a cloud by day and a fire by night. And it begins in Exodus 16.10. It just simply says the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. But then it picks up in Exodus 24, 15 to 17. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, Exodus 24. And as you read along in the story of Exodus, Moses is up there on the mountain, and Moses uh, receives uh, the description of this tent that he's to, to uh, have built in order for God's glory to come dwell with God's people. He gets the Ten Commandments, and then in a very poetic way, very famously, he comes down the hill with the Ten Commandments, and there are the people of Israel, and they're already breaking the First and the Second Commandment. They were trying to get in touch with the gods of Egypt who they missed, so they took all their jewelry, and they built this, uh, they, they uh, molded this uh, calf, and of course, God is incensed, and God says, I'm going to destroy them, and Moses pleads for the people of Israel. He intercedes, and then God says he won't destroy them. But if you read on, don't lose me on this. This is very interesting. If you read right past that, the next thing that happens, God gives the strangest offer. God says, okay, here's what we can do. God makes this fascinating offer. He says, you know, this relationship between me and this people of Israel, it's not going well. That they, are, they keep just trampling on this relationship their sinful ways are on a collision course with my holiness my glory i'll here's what i'll do i'll send my angel ahead into the land and they can go ahead the angel will secure the land and you and the people of israel can go into the land but i'm not going i will not go with you you can have your land flowing with milk and honey but i'm not going you know god offers to the people of israel i think something that the average american wants i want economic prosperity, military peace. I want all that that God can give, but I don't want God's presence. I don't God himself. And what's fascinating is Moses' response. You know, Moses, it says, had set up a tent. This is an artist's rendition. Oh, oh, we are not going, are we? We're still on, uh, well, look at that. I'm here, I'm, I'm here hitting my own stuff. Okay. There's that. Oh, God's greatest. Okay, we're going to replay now. Good. That's why someone was waving at me. Thank you for trying to let me know. Like, like, wow, I thought someone was getting filled with the Spirit over here. Okay. Now, 
Moses goes and he built, I have cool slides. If I, you don't see cool slides when I'm preaching, say, hey, where's the cool slides, preacher? All right, so Moses builds this tent. This is an artist's rendition, okay? And, and then the glory of God, remember the cloud and the fire, comes down, this kind of like electrical storm comes, um, and God meets Moses at that tent, Exodus 33, and when he goes in the glory, the glory cloud comes down the tent, when Mo, Moses goes to the tent, here's what Moses says. He says, don't even send us if you're not going with us. He says, I can't live without you. I can't live without your presence, without your glory. Just kill us. What's going on? You know, Moses had tasted the glory of God up on Mount Sinai. We read that when Moses would come down, his face was glowing. The people of Israel had to cover it. Like, what is going on? Like, he's, he's, he's exploding and radiating with life because he's been in the presence of God's glory. And Moses here has tasted of that. And then Moses goes on, he says, God, not only will I not go unless you come with us, show me your glory. I want to see your face. The face is where God's glory is most concentrated. See, Moses knows he's come in contact with the glory of all glories, the beauty beyond beauties, the very source of power, the very source of all existence, of love, of power. He's met God and he can't have enough. He wants to bathe in the glory he feels. Moses knows he's met the very fountainhead of life itself. He feels himself beginning to radiate with this life. We read that when Moses came down from the mountain, he felt the power of being in the presence of God's glory. And he says, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name. I will give you the word of my name, which that's a big deal, God's name. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Okay, so what happens? Don't lose this. It even gets better. Imagine that. What happens here is in Exodus 34, Moses actually goes up, meets God on the mountain, and it says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. God gives a word to Moses, and that word is his name. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So, here is where we have found ourselves. Moses receives this word from God. Now, three things I want to know. God's glory is most clearly found in what it says here about God's self. His mercy, his justice, his forgiveness, his love, his steadfastness. And yet, he is a God who doesn't simply sweep sin under the carpet. Okay, that's what that bad bit at the end is, is God tells truth. He isn't just turn a blind eye. God's glory, his visible splendor, is concentrated in his face, and it was too much for Moses. And God's face, if anyone was to look upon it, unaided, unfiltered, without help, would not survive. So Moses 
is in a situation. He's in a no-win situation. The thing he wants and needs more than anything, the thing he feels will transform him, make him literally come alive at a whole new level, is the very thing he can't have. He must make do with the non-visible word that God gives him. So why is this hard for Moses? I mean, think about it. If you really want to connect with somebody, if you really want to feel their presence, if you really want to be involved with somebody, don't go, hey, let's go meet at a coffee shop, show up, and spend the hour talking to each other's elbows. Right? Don't just stare at each other's knees. You need the face. The face is the presence of the other person, just tangible. The French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas said, the face is irreplaceable and uncontainable. What does he mean? He means that if we lived in a world where there was no other human face for us to see, we would be living in a hell because there is a certain kind of depth to the human face that is unmatched anywhere else in the world, and we were made for that depth. Therefore, to live in a universe without another face would be a nightmare. And we know babies can't survive if they don't have that kind of interaction with another human face. But babies are not the only ones. In the movie Castaway, based upon, I guess I hear, a true story, the character Chuck, played by Tom Hanks, takes off on a last-minute Christmas Eve trip, okay, morning, and he finds himself stranded in the South Pacific, and even though uh, he can't get off this island, there's a number of ways he can kind of ameliorate his situation, fix the situation. Uh, you know, he's able to provide food and shelter, but there's one thing he can't fix, and that is he's utterly alone. And what's fascinating is that he responds to this by building a makeshift face. He finds this, uh, this volleyball that washes up, and he creates a face out of it. And, um, you know, basically the film is saying that behind all of our primary needs resides an even greater need than food and shelter, and it's the need for a face. So Moses has sensed that he's stumbled upon the face behind all faces. It is the gaze that we were made for, the gaze beyond all gazes. And yet this one thing that we were made for, this one thing, this one splendor of all splendors, this one thing that makes all other glories and all other faces pale in comparison, this face of God is too much for us. We cannot have it. And therefore, we are all cosmic orphans without access to that face. God's story in the Bible does not end there. We come to the New Testament. In fact, it is with this background that we come to this term glory in John's gospel. The word glory is used in John's gospel more than any other book in the New Testament. And this brings us to our passage, John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness of glory, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, though we wish we could. No one has ever seen God, the only God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And the word became flesh. So I have a quiz for you, a little test now. Okay, I've downloaded, this is not a super long sermon, so hang in there right now, this is critical. But I've given you some background here. This is John 1.14. We typically read John 1.1, okay? In the, in the beginning was the word. The word that's referenced there, that's a reference to creation, Genesis 1.1, where God creates using a word. But from 1.14 to 18, the context is not creation. The context is Moses desiring to see God's glory and the face of God and unable to see the face of God, what I just gave you. So in light of that context, the question is, what word is it? that became flesh. What word is it? Do you remember the word? You heard it. God's glory dwelling with his people was manifested in a cloud. Moses was in the cloud. Moses wanted to see God's face. He could not receive it, but instead God spoke a word to Moses as he passed by. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but will by no means ignore the guilty. This is the word that became flesh in John 1, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. This is the word he's talking about. It is the word of God's mercifulness, his graciousness, his love, his forgiveness, his character, his unflinching bias against evil. It is the word, that word that became flesh, a word full of grace and truth. John is telling us that God's greatest moment of glory was not creation when he spun the stars into space. It was not when he delivered his people and he swept the Red Sea aside like you would sweep a puddle with a broom. It wasn't even the Shekinah on Mount Sinai when an electrical storm and a mountain shaking revealed to the people the terror and glory of God's presence. The greatest display of God's splendor, the greatest display of God's mercy and graciousness and love was seen when God showed up in the face of a baby. When God's face was finally seeable in the face of Jesus Christ. God displays his glory on that first Christmas. As the hymn says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Every science teacher will tell their students that they must not stare directly at the sun because it'll be too much for them. But if they use a filter, they can see the sun without it damaging their eyes. And Jesus Christ came so we could have a filter to see the face we were made to see. He makes it possible for us to see the very face behind all faces that our heart longs to see. We have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. We've been doing art during this Advent season, and one of the things you'll often see in this classic art is that the, the light radiates from Christ. And that is to remind us that this actually is the very source 
of the glory, the Shekinah glory. This is the face that will lighten our lives and hearts that we need. One of the great authors I love, C.S. Lewis, I'm going to quote from him in a second, was a great philosopher, wrote theology, incredible poetry, literary theory, aesthetic history, complex allegories. But, you know, the real brilliance of C.S. Lewis was that he could write complex subjects and make them something that even children could understand. And the great glory of Christmas, John tells us, is that God's brilliance is found in that he can make himself knowable to finite creatures in a way that we can understand. And in so doing, he makes that face behind all faces accessible. Okay, so there's, all right, where are we at? I just gave us Christmas, at least from John 1, 14 to 18. And we could stop here. But it wouldn't be fair to stop here. As I said, glory is a major theme in the book of John, and I just want to add a couple more things. As Richard Bauckham says, the gospel of John is the gospel of glory. Jesus manifests the glory of God, not just by coming with the word made flesh, but throughout the gospel, we see him bringing that glory. The glory of God is revealed when Jesus turns water into wine in chapter 2. We could keep going, and it uses the word glory over and over again. The glory is revealed when Lazarus is raised from the dead. And these keep building and building in the Gospel of John, but these are merely precursors. These are merely tremors before the ultimate display of glory happens, what Jesus calls his hour of glory. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Why Christmas? Why did Jesus come? What was God's very greatest moment of glory? What was the ultimate display of God's glory, according to John? Where do we witness the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin? Where do we see that? Yes, we see it in the manger, but ultimately we see it on the face of Jesus as he is beaten and mocked and spit upon and hung upon a bloody cross. God's greatest display of glory, the best way we can see God's face, a face of mercy and grace and love and forgiveness, is by looking at the cross. As John chapter 3 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Praise be to God. And this word everlasting life, it reminds us of one more thing. Namely, Christmas is not just about the glory of God being revealed, but it's also about the possibility of our own glory being revealed. Somewhere on here, here we go. Moses had it right. If indeed there is a God, there is no greater good than to be able to see the face of God, to be welcomed by the only opinion in the universe that ultimately matters because it's the opinion that knows everything. 
to be seen and to be known, to be invited into by the face behind all faces, the very fountainhead of all beauty and loveliness, that is what would be the greatest thing, and that's what we are made for. The Bible says that one day, actually, every single one of us will meet that face, that we will all stand before God's judgment seat, that we all stand before the face of God. And this is where our future glory comes into the picture. C.S. Lewis, who I'd mentioned earlier, says this, the promise of the Bible is that by the work of Christ, some of us, any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God, shall please God, shall be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, and shall be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or as a father and a son. Just as Moses had sensed, the Bible tells us that that day in which we meet the face of all faces, if because of the work of Christ, that face turns to us and delights in us, it will cause our souls to explode. There will be a radiance and a glory that happens to us, which is beyond our wildest imagination. We will be glorified. But until that day, the day when the face that forged the universe turns to every one of us, we need to look again at what Christmas tells us. Namely, that we were made in the image of God and that our greatest glory is not found in our achievements and accomplishments and successes. Just as God's greatest glory is hidden in the glad self-giving displayed in the manger and manifested on the cross, our greatest glory will be revealed and found in our hidden life where we display, just like the Lord God, mercy and kindness and love and forgiveness, just as God did in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. And this is what Christmas is about. Christmas is about God's glory being revealed. The Lord, the Lord, merciful, kind, loving forgiveness, being revealed so that we might become creatures of love, filled with joy, composed with peace, displaying patience, marked by kindness, living lives that are deep reservoirs of goodness and gentleness and exhibiting self-control. And self-control is a good word for us to end on. For it says it all. Christmas is God's great act of glory where through becoming human, God gives us back our humanity that in seeing the face of God, we might find our own faces. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, Christmas is too big for us. It's too big. What you did is so amazing. Lord, we just ask for your mercy that we may not get lost this Christmas season and miss that in the face of that child was your face. That you came, that we might have a way back to you, that we might see your glory, and that we might be changed by that glory. And you went even further. You took upon yourself all of our sin and darkness, and you made us people that can live in your presence eternally. We thank you that you loved us so much 
that you came, that you died, that you gave us yourself so that we might find ourselves. And it's the name of your precious son, our savior, that we pray.